Today's show is made possible by Wine Emotion USA, the industry leader in wine dispensing and preservation systems. Reduce spoilage, track your pours, and increase your return on investment. With 30 days of preservation, three pour control volumes, and Wine IDS software, Wine Emotion systems are the dynamic tool to expand your wine by the glass program. Visit WineEmotionUSA.com, that's WineEmotionUSA.com, to see how your business can grow your wine sales with Wine Emotion wine dispensing and preservation systems. Wine Emotion USA, technology at the service of wine. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, it's the stories behind wine a show dedicated to the people, places, and stories that influence the world of wine. I'm Christian Ogenfuss, and on today's show, I sit down with... Um, I'm Ian. Ian Michael Harris is my middle name. No one ever uses it. So Ian Michael Harris. I'm Chief Executive of the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. Ian's journey begins at university in England. I studied French at university uh, and I enjoyed my school days so much that I thought I'd quite like to go back and become a teacher teaching French. And as part of my university degree, uh, I had the opportunity to go and live in France as as an assistant teacher for a year. So I did that. Uh, And because I was very keen on playing rugby, my tutor at university suggested I go down to the southwest of France. So I applied for a post in a school just south of Bordeaux, and that's where I ended up, uh, just south of the Sauterne area. Small school in a little little uh, town called Bazas. And I got to know people who worked in the wine business because my pupils, I was only 20, and my the pupils I was teaching English to were between 16 and 18, so they were more like friends than than pupils. And a lot of them were connected with the wine business, either parents who owned vineyards or parents who worked for Negociant. And I I used to get invited to their houses for, for dinner so I could speak English to their other children and give them free English lessons, I guess. And I just got, an, I just got interested in wine. And I remember uh, it was about three months in and I wrote my mother a postcard in the days before emails saying, I've just come back at two o'clock in the morning from a fantastic dinner at a vineyard in Sauterne. The owner of the vineyard cooked steaks over the cuttings from the vines he'd just pruned. Then we went back in and finished dinner. uh, And I've just got home to my apartment at two o'clock in the morning. The wine trade seems a bit like more fun than teaching. And, And that was it. So I didn't know when I came back to the UK to do my final exams, with this is this is 1976 my final exams were going to be in june 77 i didn't know how you could get into the wine business it wasn't something that i was in any shape or form uh, interested in prior to living in france um but a friend of mine who i played cricket with had accounts at three fine wine companies and i asked him how you get into into wine and the next week when we were playing cricket together he brought me the price list of one of the companies which was a company called christopher and company who'd been founded before the great fire of london in 1666 Uh, and i wrote to them i wrote one letter 
to the managing director saying who I was and I was just about to finish my degree. I got a letter back about a week later saying, please come in for to meet uh, meet him. So I went out and bought a suit because I didn't have a suit. I went in to see him and I came out an hour later with a job. So one letter, one interview, one job, which is certainly something which never happens today. I've got two girls in their 20s desperately trying to find work and they have to apply for thousands before they can even get one. So I was very lucky. So it was I was in the, I guess I was in the right place at the right time, which sort of has followed me as a trait for the last 40 years. That, that's a great story. And definitely, it sounds like uh, serendipity. And it was it was meant to meant to be. I'd like to, I'd like to think so. Yeah. So, Ian, since since that fateful day when the, the one letter uh, one interview, one one job, um, Trinity, you have uh, gone a long way, and and um, you have driven remarkable growth with the WSET in the UK and across the world uh, since you joined, I believe, in two thousand and two. And this achievement seems to have been punctuated by uh, being named Drinks Businessman of the Year in two thousand and fourteen, receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Drink Retailers uh, Awards. Uh, and also accepting the Queen's Award uh, for Enterprise in International Trade on behalf of the WSET. Tell us a little bit about what the WSET is and, and its mission. Well, we were, the WSET was founded in 1969 to educate the UK drinks trade, predominantly the wine trade, which was just starting to get, um, get some sort of traction. And this is in the late 60s. So the Wine and Spirit Education Trust was set up to educate people who worked predominantly in the in the wine business, which in those days was fine wine merchants. Wine was really the, uh, it was people who had been brought up in relatively well-off families who drank wine. Wine was, no, was not commonplace uh, in those days. And then, uh, so, so when I joined the wine business in 1977, the first thing my boss did was send me on WCT courses. So I did what was the certificate, which is now the equivalent of level two, the higher certificate, which is now the equivalent of level three, and then the diploma, all in the space of three years. And in 1980, I completed my diploma. So the WCT was, in those days, only teaching people who worked in the UK. Then in the 80s, a few international uh, countries started to hear about WCT. Although, in fact, the very first international exam run outside the UK by WSET was actually as far back as 1977 in Toronto in Canada. And that was because the Liquor Board of Ontario had heard about the WSET courses and someone from Ontario came over to London and they arranged that they would be able to sit an exam in Ontario. But the international growth of WSET only really started in 1990. And when I joined in 2002, Two-thirds of the UK, two-thirds of the students were from the UK, and one-third were from international markets. And there were about eight or nine international markets doing WCT courses and taking WCT exams. And then that's grown. Uh, if I give you some statistics, in so in 2002, the total of the WCT students in that year was 10,000, roughly. Of those, six and a half thousand were in the UK, three and a half thousand were in international markets. In the last academic year, that figure of 10,000 a year had risen to 72,000 a year. And of those, 
three quarters, just over three quarters, are now in international markets, which means that the number of international students in the last 12 months was 54,000 compared with three and a half thousand 15 years ago. Uh, so our international growth has really driven the, the growth of WCT over the last 15 years since I've been here. That's phenomenal growth. I think any business would be uh, envious of, of that achievement. You mentioned that the growth on the international side of WSCT has, has been the driver uh, this, this last 12 months. Which markets are seeing the most activity with, uh, with interest in WSCT certifications? Okay. Um, well, um, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that China is. China has gone from virtually nothing 10 years ago to over... Uh, just in the last year, about for Greater China, about fifteen, sixteen thousand students a year. Uh, but the other big one has been the USA. Uh, the USA has grown. We were we started in the USA back in the nineteen nineties. So we've we had a um, we had a center and still do have a center in New York, and we also had a center on the West Coast. Uh, but now we have uh, over well over 40 centers dotting or dotted around the USA and we're also doing a, do it, we we started to do WST courses in the major distributors and this was about 4 or 5 years ago so that's had a very big impact on our growth in the USA and also uh, as you know we've got some very good schools in the USA you of course running one of them uh, which is all helping to spread the word about education and about qualifications across the states. So our three biggest markets, uh, China is now our biggest market for students, followed by the UK, but number three is USA. So And USA is growing at the moment at just over 50% a year. So we're looking for great things from the USA. China and China's growing at about 60%. So those two big markets are driving our growth at the moment. Who are these qualifications for? Who should be looking at um, a WSET qualification? Is it is a is it a very narrow segment of of the wine industry, or is it is it a certification that is geared uh, more to a broader uh, segment of the wine industry? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, the first thing to say is that about two thirds of our students have some connection with the industry, but one third have no connection with the industry. These are just people who want to learn about wines and spirits and want a certificate to put on their wall to show that they know something about it. But if we take the two thirds of our students who are in the trade, the way I describe it is if your job means that you have to physically touch a bottle, a glass, a grape, anything that goes into making wine, if you physically have to touch something that goes into making wine, then you are in the industry and these qualifications are relevant for you. So it could be a winemaker, could be the guy who serves behind the bar at, at, at a, a local restaurant. It could be a wholesaler who actually has to shift boxes around. So it's anybody who touches wines or spirits. Uh, these courses, the courses and the qualifications are relevant. So how is the WSCT certification track different from other organizations such as the Court of Master Sommeliers or in the U.S., the Society of Wine Educators? We often get asked uh, about the differences. We'd love to hear your perspective. Of course. Yeah. And, 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 and it's a question that, that I often get asked. And um, if you don't mind my uh, pronunciation of the word sommelier, um, I know that in America, 
the accent is on the first syllable, so it's sommelier. And I, whenever, whenever I'm in America, I get people saying to me, so if I do your courses, does that make me a sommelier? And I have to go, no, it makes you more knowledgeable than you were before. But to me, being a, being a, a Brit, a sommelier is the person who serves your wine at the table and, and gets the wine list sorted out and orders the wines for the restaurant. Uh, so the court of master sommeliers, we actually work very closely with the court of master sommeliers. And the majority of people who, who want to go on to the MS master of sommelier qualification actually do WCT qualifications to give them their product knowledge, which gives them the basis to then go on to the sommelier qualifications, which are more vocational, looking at specific jobs, specifically running the wine programs in restaurants. So that's how we fit in with the court of master sommeliers. When it comes to the Society of Wine Educators, um, people often say to me, aren't they your competitor? And my view is always, actually, if organizations are doing education and have got good, robust qualifications, as indeed the Society of Wine Educators has, that's fine by me. That's absolutely fine. We're not trying to squash anyone who's doing education. In fact, we encourage it. We're actually a member of the Society of Wine Educators. So we go to their uh, conference. My team, some of them uh, will speak at their conference. So we have a we have a uh, we coexist perfectly happily. Um, whether someone wants to do an SWE qualification or a WCT qualification, to be honest, is up to them. We, uh, we would not dissuade anyone from doing someone else's qualifications. What we would do is persuade them that the, the knowledge they're going to get from doing a WCT, WCT qualification is firstly bang up to date relevant to their job or their personal interest if they're a consumer uh, and we're the biggest in the world so we must be doing something right so um, I don't know whether that answers your question as, as someone who's delivering uh, courses you must have people at the front end who are saying so should I do SWE or should I do CMS or should I do WSET all you can do is tell them what the qualifications are like tell them what's in the subject, ask them to speak to past students. And really the choice is up to them. Our view is that as long as the WCT qualifications, the course books, the materials, the specifications, the teachers are bang up to date and are doing a first class job and that everything is of the highest possible quality, then people will want to do a WCT qualification. And wherever I go in the world, I'm staggered by the reputation that we've got everywhere in the world. We we have courses available now in over 70 countries. There's the big ones, obviously, like China and USA, but we've got a whole raft of smaller countries. And I was sitting next to, I'm slightly digressing, but I was sitting next to someone at a dinner last week from Lebanon. And I was introduced to him and he's, uh, I won't tell you who he is, but he's associated with the most famous um, vineyard in Lebanon. And he shook my hand and said, thank God for WSET. And I said, can I put that in print? He said, no, probably, probably best not. But when I hear people like this guy, who's highly respected in, in a relatively small uh, producing country, not only has he heard about us, he thinks that 
having WST qualifications around the world is such a wonderful way for the industry to get it, make itself better. So that, that really just does my heart good. I just, so I'm sorry, I've rambled a little bit, but as you know, I'm pretty passionate about what we do. The WSCT, obviously, uh, as you uh, as you mentioned, one of the uh, initiatives, or um, uh, should I say, uh, desires is to always stay stay up to date. And you recently launched uh, a new sake education program. What was the main driver for this? Because it is a slight departure from uh, wine and spirits. Um, tell us a little bit about what the driver for sake education was. Well, actually. Um I mean, interesting, we used to, when I joined the WCT, we used to have, we used to have beer as within our qualifications. And actually, and we, 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 we lost that about two years after I joined because it, firstly, the syllabus for wine in particular was getting wider and wider and broader and something had to go. But then when we had the opportunity and we started talking about how we could expand, the subject of sake came up, kept coming up. And the, the rationale for it is actually someone who drinks fine wine is the same person who's likely to drink sake and that he's also that person might also be the same person who's going to drink malt whiskey or go into a cocktail bar and drink vodka so it's not it's not about the production method that actually is irrelevant it's about the target consumer who is drinking sake who is the same consumer who's drinking fine wine probably in the same restaurants and going to the same stores and going online to buy the same products. Uh, it happened to coincide with the fact that we were having a big push into Japan and the Japanese government asked us if we had any plans to develop sake because they knew of our reputation. So they actually helped us uh, and unashamedly they've, they helped to fund particularly our educator program. So we've, we, we ran the first educator programs in Japan, funded by um, two departments from um, the Japanese government. And this really gave it a kickstart. But it's more the fact that sake is available in most major cities around the world now, in the same restaurants where the sommeliers or the, or the people going in there will be interested in wine. So, so it was just a natural fit. What what's next in 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 wine education? What do you, what do you think wine education looks like in the next five to ten years down the road? How will it be changing? I think well, I think there's going to be more of an emphasis on online content. To be honest, the when I did my WST courses forty nearly forty years ago, you turned up to a classroom, you tasted wine, you were lectured at. You weren't taught. You were lectured at. You listened while well, an expert talked to you, you tasted the wines, and then a, a few days later or a few weeks later, you did an exam, and then a few weeks later, you got your certificate. These days, firstly, people want things more quickly. They And, and I have to say to many people when they go, oh, well, I want to do level two next week, and then as soon as I get the results, I'll do level three, and then as soon as I've done that, I want to sign up for diploma. And I have, have to say to them, look, don't be impatient take time go to tastings read books read blogs meet people when you feel you're ready then go on to the next level but i really feel that the biggest not innovation because it's already there but the biggest development within wine and spirit education over the next 10 years will be the growth of online education 
tying in with that will be online assessment. And that's quite a big hurdle for us because online education, as long as the content is good and when someone's got their phone in their hand or they're sitting at home in front of their laptop or, or iPad, doing education online on any subject is, is, is relatively straightforward. It's the assessment, i.e. the examination, which has a few hurdles because um, as an accredited qualification, we need to know that the person at the end of the line doing their online examination is actually the person that they say they are and they haven't got someone just out of camera shot who's a master of wine passing them notes out of out of view of the camera so i've got a team of people now working on developing our we've got an online classroom already which is pretty good but it could be way better uh so i think online education and online assessment is going to not just revolutionize wine education it's just going to spread it more quickly more widely and more effectively what are some of the biggest challenges that an organization like like the wset faces um well one of the i think one of the biggest hurdles which we tend we certainly faced when i first joined but i think we've we've stressed to companies the value of education as a driver of business, whether you're a wholesaler, a restaurant, a bar, even even a, a vineyard, is that cutting the, the training budget is not a good idea. The problem, of course, is that we have things like the global financial crisis of 2008-9, and I've worked in a multinational company myself. When someone says to you, you've got to cut your budgets by 20%, the red pen tends to go straight towards the training budget because a lot of people think if I cut the training budget it doesn't matter as long as I reinstate it next year no one will notice my staff will be okay as long as we we give them training next year uh, and cut and but cut it for one year and that is a really 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 big mistake because we've proved time and time again that giving staff in whatever company a training program shows that you value them and they will the good ones will stay if you don't give people training the good ones will go and the bad ones will stay and that's what you don't want so it's convincing companies that the training budget needs to be viewed as an investment not as a cost in the same way that if you're running a wholesaler you've got to think of it in the same terms of, as buying a new new delivery vehicle it's an investment in your business which is going to put money on the bottom line because we've proved time and time again that whether it's a consumer or whether it's someone serving at front of house, the more they know, the more they will be prepared to pay for a bottle of wine, a glass of wine or spirits. And therefore, the more margin will be breathed into the whole of the distribution chain from producer to distributor to retailer to consumer. So it's all down to getting the consumer to actually have a reason to spend more money. And education, people, companies should view education as part of their marketing budget, not part of their overheads. What is one of the things you think some people would be surprised to learn uh, about your organization, about the WSCT? Um, um, just the sheer size of us, actually. When I say to, because I even in the UK industry, which is has grown up with the WSET, I meet people who still 
think of WCT as a sleepy little organization. Um, when I joined it, it was 21 people. When I first started teaching for WCT, because I actually taught on diploma on the subject of spirits back in the 1990s, there were eight or nine people. And a lot of people still think of us as a sleepy little organization. And when I say I've got 107 people reporting to me and 72,000 people took a WCT qualification in one of 73 countries and seven just over 700 centers around the world. I think that's the thing that staggers people, just the sheer scale that we've now got. Um, and and the fact that when I say, and, and of course China's our biggest market, people sometimes look at me as if I'm daft because they, they just don't realize how big China is and how they, they firstly buy into the idea of education and also they're a, a real burgeoning wine market. So there's lots of things that people are surprised about in this industry. Uh, but as far as WST is concerned, it's about, it's about the sheer scale and growth because we've, we've grown with six times the size we were 15 years ago. So it's, it's, a, it's a big organization which creates its own headaches for me, but I love it. So I can live with it. What advice would you give someone looking to enter the wine business from another industry? Uh, the first advice is um, make sure you've managed your expectations in terms of salary. Because if you come from a sector like the financial sector or indeed the FMC sector where you've been the marketing director for someone like Procter & Gamble, don't think you're going to come into a similar job in a wine company and earn the same package. And I had that personally when I left Seagram. I knew I'd be taking a, a step down. I no longer got a company car. I no longer got health insurance. But actually, the, the advice I would give, your, your question was, what advice would I give? Firstly, make sure you can afford to join the wine industry. If you're actually very well paid in another industry, you might want to just have a bit of a think about that. But the other advice is you will really enjoy yourself. It's a wonderful industry to work in. You meet lovely people. Uh, even if you're struggling to make margins and you're competing against another company for the same piece of business, somehow it's, it's more fun than trying to sell washing machines or washing powder or, or dog food to somebody because the empathy with the product is always there. And however much you might be competing against somebody, there's always time for a glass of wine at the end of the day where you discuss business, you discuss opportunities. And it's just, maybe it's because I've only ever worked in that industry for 40 years, but I love it. And, and I just say to people, the, my, the advice I would give is if you want a job where you will enjoy your work, join the wine and spirit business. Because I and feel free to edit this, edit this out. But um, I quite often get asked to go and speak to students at universities, not wine students, just students through friends of mine. And I, I say to them, I, I start off by putting the number one hundred and sixty-eight on a chart and saying, "What is that? What's that?" And the, the smart ones will go, "One hundred sixty-eight. Oh yeah, right. That's the number of hours in a week." I go, "Yeah, okay." And then I put another number up, which is. 50 and they say well what's i say what's that and i say well that's that's the sort of the hours you work in a week you know assume you work eight hours a day and you've got a two-hour commute so about 50 hours a week is what you work out of the 168 and then put another chart up which is which is 56 and that's the number of hours you're asleep so take 156 off 168 you're left with 112 
and pretty much half of that waking time you are working so if you don't enjoy your job that means you're pretty much wasting half of your life so you might as well have a job you enjoy so my advice to anybody is be realistic about the salary expectations but you could but the the it's it's more than compensated by the fact that you will actually enjoy your job rather than dreading getting up in the morning mentoring roles play play an important part in in many successful individuals um rise to uh to stardom if you will in your in your uh rise to to the top of the WSCT have any mentors played a role in 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 helping you along the way um yeah i mean i would say if i'm looking at people who've really made a difference in my career before I joined. So I'm looking at before the WSCT. There are certainly people within, since I've joined the WSCT, who've given me very good advice, which has helped me to um, uh, do what we've done here. But prior to joining the WSCT, I had, there are two, there are th- actually there are three people. I, I'll, I'll, I'll mention three people. And if they ever get to listen to this, they're going to be hugely embarrassed. The first one was my uh, was the managing director of Waverley Vintners, which was part of which was the first company I worked for. A guy called Sandy Kostorfin, a lovely, lovely man who I still see, um, and I tell him this, and he gets very embarrassed. He plucked me out of the obscurity, relative relative obscurity of being just one of the sales force, and brought and took me up to uh, work for him as WCT's, uh, sorry, as um, Waverley Vintners' first wine development manager. Uh, and he drummed into me the importance of and he had a he had a thing on his on his desk which was MBWA, and I I said Sandy what's what's is that some company he said no it's management by walking about, and he taught me the importance and this is obviously before uh, emails pretty much before computers of actually going out and whether you've got people who work with you work for you or on whom you're reliant. Go out and speak to them. Don't pick up. Don't just pick up the phone. Certainly, don't just write to them. And these or these days, send them an email. Get off your chair, walk, look at the colour of their eyes, and that's really that has really helped me. So that, he was the first one. The next one was my when I first moved into marketing at Seagram. Um, the first marketing director I worked for was a lady called Annick Deviar, who is by as you can hear French, uh, and she was an exceptional boss. Um, I almost didn't get the job when I applied for it. This was to this was to run uh, the Martell brand in the UK when Seagram bought Martell, because when I walked into her office, she was on the phone, rattling away in French to somebody. She motioned for me to sit down, which I did, and then five minutes later, she came off the phone. And one of the prerequisites for the job that I was applying for was to be able to be able to speak French because uh, the guys in Martel, their English wasn't very good. So she put the phone down. She looked me in the eye and she said, I guess you understood every word I was saying on, on that phone call. And I had to think very quickly because if I'd said yes, it implied that I was listening in, in, a, in a, on her conversation. And if I said no, it implied that my French wasn't up to scratch. So luckily I came up with the phrase, had I been listening, I would have been un- I would have understood every word. So, um, so the thing that she taught me actually was, was, was honesty. Um, so in a big company like Seagram, a lot of people hide, they are quite selfish if they're on big bonus schemes, 
she taught me to be totally honest. Don't ever pull the wool over somebody's eyes because they'll find you out. So that was the second one. Third person, uh, and, un- and I bumped into him actually on the way back from Provine two days ago, was uh, my the, the managing director at Seagram when I was when I came back to be marketing director at Seagram UK, a guy called John, John Ratcliffe. And John is, um, John was deputy managing director of Oddbins. He then moved across to Seagram UK. Uh, and whenever I had someone new join me at Seagram and John was walking past, I used to have to say to these new recruits of mine, see that guy over there, he may look like the cleaner, but he's actually the managing director and the smartest bloke in this building. So do not underestimate him. But John, John was really a man of the people. John would go and talk to anybody about anything. He would ask an order clerk, what, what's the latest order they got in? He would ask a salesman, has he seen such and such a company? And he was actually a workaholic and still is. And I guess I've probably inherited a bit of that. But it does help if you've got a job you really love to work long long hours but so john so john i guess john taught me the work ethic anik taught me the honesty and sandy taught me the importance of actually going out and speaking to people and and looking them in the eye so yeah those three since i joined the wct i've been very fortunate that i've had um chairman of trustees because we're a charity so not-for-profit organization i report to a board of trustees and i have I've had some excellent chairman all of whom i've worked very closely with and all of whom I'm now personal friends with, and I'm now on my uh, seventh chairman since I joined. And every single one of them has given me advice, which has helped. Um, most of them have been older than me, um, with one exception, but uh, sorry, two exceptions, but they've all helped me in different ways and helped to open doors that I couldn't open. So I tend to, although I'm the chief executive and I run the place and I'm a real controller, I do rely on other people, whether they are our trustees, our chairman, to help me to open doors, because I'm, I'm not able to open every single door that I want to push at. Um, so so I've, I'm very, very grateful for all the chairmen that, that I've had since I joined here 15 years ago. What drives you? What, what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in, uh, in, in the morning? I, I, suppose I, I, I love my job and success, actually. Success is something that I thrive on it. I thrive on on seeing things which are successful. When I go around the world to trade shows, I love it when people come up to me and they want to shake my hand. These days they want a selfie with me, which is absolutely fine. And I love hearing people talk about how much they've enjoyed their course or the job they've got as a result of their WCT qualification. So I'm I'm very ambitious. And it's not it's not just work life, it's home life as well. My children are both very bright and they've they're making their way in the world. One's still at university, one's um, now working for NBC News. And I take immense pride in the fact that they seem to have uh, inherited my work ethic. And and my work ethic actually comes from my father originally because he was he um, he was he was a he was a, a soldier in the Second World War. Um, he was taken prisoner. He was in a prison camp for uh, a year and a half before the Second World War ended. So he didn't. He, his his youth was completely ruined by the Second World War. He was 26 when the Second World War ended. He hadn't been to college. He'd left. He'd been called up when he was still at high school. What you would call high school, and he taught me the importance of of, of hard 
graft to get on. And he always said to me, if you give 120% to a company, so you're prepared to work longer hours, you're prepared to go that extra mile, you will reap 150% reward. And I've, that's just stuck with me. So that drives me. It's remembering what my dad taught me. And, and the fact that working, I, I just love doing what I do. So when I get up in the morning, I just, it doesn't take... I don't even I normally wake up before the alarm goes off I jump on the bike and here I am so I love my job so as long as I love my job I'll be happy so with so many achievements under under your belt what's next for Ian Harris um well for me personally um well as you can see from the receding hairline and the gray hairs around the ears here um I'm 62 next month um people often say to me when are you going to retire um to be honest i'm going to put it off quite a while yet um i'm thinking of that i might consider retiring when i'm 66 so four and a bit years but actually what's next to me for me is to do what for for wct what the wct has achieved in wine i want us to achieve in spirits because if you take those 72,000 students 90 probably 95 percent of those nine those 72,000 students do WCT courses because they want to learn about wine there's a massive world out there in countries which aren't necessarily wine countries in South America in Southeast Asia in Northern Europe which are have very very strong spirits businesses spirits retailers spirits shops and a spirits culture and that's an area which we have only just scratched the surface so I think Within the next five years, we can double the number of students that we've got just by actually getting our spirits act together. Because at the moment, we have spirits qualifications. We're spending a lot of time and effort and resource on making them better and introducing new ones. So I guess the biggest thing, what's next for Ian Harris, is, is more growth for WSET. And that's going to come from spirits. It's going to come from, as we said at the very beginning, more digital learning. Um, and it's going to be it's going to be making sure that the reputation of, of the organization stays as high as it is. So, yeah, short term health, God willing, I'm, I'll be here for a few more years yet. And um, will I ever slow down? Yeah, of course I will at some stage, but not just yet. Final question um, I have for you is if you could host a dinner with two to three distinguished guests from the wine world, living or dead, who would you include at the dining room table? Okay, if it was three people, it would be Michael Broadbent, who I love to bits. He's just the most wonderful man, knowledgeable, charming. It would have to be Jancis, Jancis Robinson. And I would probably, so they're, they're obviously both alive. Um, if I, and, and I was thinking about this, I would go back, I would invite Andre Simon, because Andre Simon started wine education in the UK before the First World War, so just after the turn of the 20th century, so over 100, 100 years ago. And I've read books by him. I've read the textbooks that he wrote, which were the first wine education textbooks back in 1919, 1918. And I would love to love to have met him. So M Michael Broadbent. Jancis Robinson, Andre Simon. 
Well, Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to spend this time with you, and, and thanks so much for your uh, openness and, and candor in, in answering these questions. Congratulations on the enormous success of, uh, of the WSET and for what is yet to come, and we look forward to uh, having you back on the show sometime in the future. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure to, pleasure to speak to you over the, over, over the uh, airwaves, and uh, I hope you have a good... It's early in the morning where you are, so I hope you have a good rest of the day. Well, thank you so much, Ian. Cheers, My and uh, enjoy your evening. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Stories Behind Wine. Make sure to share us with your friends, subscribe to our podcast, and leave us a review. Until next time, I'm Christian Ogenfuss. <laughs>